Культура кура. Культура стілює. В Латинській Америці кажуть культура кура, що означає культура або спілкування стілює. Розкажи свою історію. Стіли себе, стіли своє суспільство. Uh, hello, dear colleagues. Hello, Jonathan, Rob, Heather, Heather, sorry. Uh, is it correct? Is it correctly? Heather. Um, I would like to present you our project, uh, which is named Cultura uh, Cura, uh, Culture Cures, Cultura uh, Stiluje, which is a widely spread uh, Latin American expression that means um, culture or communication heals. And we speak about uh, healing the fractures of, of society by means of culture. And uh, probably I would like to start our uh, conversation with a small presentation of, of yourselves and maybe uh, with some special question about uh, the black country, about uh, the way how you uh, became a writer in, uh, in a black country, uh, a writer from a working class. In, in the black country. So what kind of experience is it? Uh, Heather, could you please start? Yes, yeah, certainly. I grew up in an area called Cradley Heath um, in the black country. Uh, my family was quite a bit unusual for the area because my dad was part of um, a family firm. My family owned a cooperage which makes or did make tubs and barrels and we lived basically next door to the factory so for him to get to work all he had to do was go up the steps and in through a door and he was at work so it did mean that I grew up feeling a little bit different from the other people in the area um, a lot of the people in the area were employed by my dad's factory Um, but it was a really, really good relationship that he had, and everybody was, it was like a, an extended family. I lived on a, a street of terraced houses, um, so we had a, a, an out, outdoor toilet and a small kitchen, small um, living room where we spent most of our time. The front room um, was kept for best, so we hardly ever went in there. There was a piano, which I learned to play. And sometimes I'd play in the street. Um, and basically that was my world. The black country is, is very, it's a kind of a small place in a way, because where you live um, just feels, it felt very small to me at least. So I walked to school. There was um, a pub at the bottom of the road. There was um, a cobbler. There was um, a dry cleaners, a chip shop, a little general store and sweet shop that I used to go to. So I didn't have to go very far at all. I would go with my mother to uh, buy vegetables uh, from the gross, from the greengrocers. We actually had our bread and our milk delivered and our coal delivered. Um, and that, that was my world um, until they decided to knock it down. They demolished our house 
our factory, our, our street, just our street. And that was when I moved to a different part of the black country and had a very different experience living on a main road where I didn't get to know the people in the streets, um, but I could still walk to school. So I think that that was one part of my upbringing. And another part was that we got interested in canals. And so my dad would um, take us on our canal boat and we would have holidays. So it was, it's like the two areas, um, the, the industrial area where I lived and then the boating area, the canals. And looking back, I've, I've been thinking about what I was writing when I was a child. And the first few poems were, were sort of nothing to do with the black country. The first one ever wrote at infant school was about the moon. And I've, I've asked an old school friend of mine and she said that at infant school, we were introduced to the poets, Robert Louis Stevenson and um, uh, Walter de la Mare. Why canals are so important? Yes, yeah, sure. There are a, a lot of canals in the back, black country. Um, they, they were built to carry cargo. Um, and during the time that I was growing up, they were in a derelict state and there was a lot of campaigning to restore them. And my family got involved with that. Um, we, we started getting involved in canals because both myself and my brother were ill a lot. Maybe it was because we lived next door to factory and we were breathing in wood sawdust all the time, um, and other factory pollution, I don't know. But the doctor said we needed more fresh air and exercise. So we bought a little boat and realized that there was another world. So the, from the canals, the black country looks like a totally different place. And it's a way that I could escape. And, and I, I spent a lot of time on my own, just enjoying being in, not always in countryside because a lot of the black countries um, is very, uh, yeah. Not, not that beautiful, but it was an interesting and lovely place for me as a child. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for, for this clear story. Uh, Rob, could you please tell me about your uh, story of becoming uh, a writer? Now you are um, an academic scholar and uh, you, you are the one who uh, could be probably called a self-made uh, writer. So what was your path? Um, well, uh, like Heather, really, I, I grew up in a small part of the black country. Um, but I, I guess my, um, my childhood growing up in the kind of 80s and 90s was in the, in the, the kind of ruins of uh, the black country's industrial past, really. So many, many of the, the forges and steelworks and, and mines had, uh, had been shut down and just kind of relics of them existed when, when I was growing up. Um, but it, it's that sort of off kilter and unusual landscape that really excited me. I mean, it was it was where we muck about and, and play around as kids. Um, but it's all it's also got a really strange beauty and a strange appeal. So it features quite heavily in my in my writing, uh, my, my poems and my and my, my fiction pieces, uh, as well as my academic work for that matter. Um, I'm really interested in the way that. Uh, people and place come together where uh, 
the sense or spirit of a place uh, charges our sense of self, uh, both communally and and individually. Um, uh, so so that's a that's a big part of it. Um, and I guess like coming from a from a writer's perspective, I, I've always written and um, it, it started out with music, funnily enough. And I, and I think this is probably something that a lot of black country writers have got in common because we're on the edges, because we're on the periphery, sort of geographically and culturally. We kind of make our own rules a wee bit. And um, quite a lot of the culture from around here is grassroots, it's, it's community individual and community led uh projects and um and and scenes uh and a big part of that is the music scene as well so i was i was really into metal and and, and rock music and, and stuff like that so bands like trying trying to trying to uh trying to write metallica and iron maiden lyrics was was what i was doing when i was kind of uh seven eight nine um and uh but it was but it was those bands that kind of led me into poetry and, and whatnot as well so maiden led me to william blake and wordsworth the manic street preachers and the smiths led me to larkin and plath and miller and mailer and and, and whatnot so uh, that's the kind of trajectory um and, and i guess i just kept slogging at it um but it was i i suppose in, in lots of ways the kind of black country influence and the working class influence came quite a lot later. I moved away uh, from the region when I, when I finished uni Well, I went down to Portsmouth University when I was uh, an undergraduate. And then soon after that, moved up to Leeds and then Teesside. So I've lived in quite a lot of the UK's industrial heartlands, I suppose, um, or post-industrial as they were then. Um, and, uh, it wasn't until I kind of got more mature, I suppose, that I that I started to think, oh, I've I've um, I've missed out on quite a lot of the black country. I've I've, I've taken it for granted, and and so I sort of moved back in my thirties, um, and that's when it really kind of gripped me. That's where there's the, that in between off kilter, unusual landscape, and the the peculiarities of its dialect and uh idiosyncratic kind of cultures and communities really kind of uh caught me and, and and i've been exploring it sort of creatively and scholarly ever since i realize i didn't say much about about the writing that i did uh and i think like you uh rob i i've started to write about the black country later in life and i moved away i went to university and i got steered through the science route um, so I ended up doing maths but I managed to sneak in music as well because I've done a lot of music and songwriting um, and I think the, the sort of stuff I was writing it was influenced by poets that I was introduced to at school but also so we went to church every Sunday and so we sang hymns and I think um, the structure and the pattern of hymns and uh, the sort of Bible stories, that, that kind of thing influenced me. I, I was more into um, sort of, it was Mark Bolan was my pin-up when I was a teenager. And a lot of my writing when I was a teenager, unfortunately, was teenage angst. Nothing that I would want anybody to read now. 
uh, but it, yeah, it was rhythms and, and the dialect and the language soaked into me, um, although we didn't use it on a daily basis. Um, it was there all the time um, from the people that I met and the people who worked in the factory. And then later in life, I've gone back to it and I love writing stuff in dialects and being, um, writing, you know, being a, a black country character. And I've written loads of poems about my street because they demolished it. You're talking about memory and how writing can help memory. I've, I've helped deal with the trauma of losing my childhood street um, by writing about it and, and planting it in my memory and planting all the people that were in that street. And I've done a lot of ancestry um, research as well to, to look back into my family and find out that they were all, well, most of them were, were labourers. Um, and there were a lot of, there's a lot of chain makers in, in my family. I'm not descended from any, I don't think. It's, uh, I, mean, that I, I do find it quite, fascinating now. Yeah, that, that's quite a, a preoccupation of black country literature generally, and it's certainly the kind of shared space for, for mine and Heather's work as well, that we're, we're, we're in, in some ways really, really proud of the industrial past and proud of what the region has done, but there's also a, a tinge of guilt and lack and loss about it as well. So where I'm looking at the kind of unusual overlooked landscapes and what that does to character and person and drama and whatever, Heather's really interested in kind of unpicking the the overlooked stories and the histories, I suppose, as well. I've heard um, a big love uh, with which uh, Heather has, has ex uh, described uh, her past and her street. And I, uh, I saw that uh, there were a lot of um, creative activities connected with uh, the canals, uh, what you have heard that Heather told about protecting canals. Uh, could you please um, could you please tell something about uh, this um, kind of memorizing memorizing of your own place, memorizing of uh, and loving uh, uh, your place by um, gathering oral stories, of your place by uh, keeping uh, this oral history. Uh, you work um, with that kind of material. You convert this into poems, into songs. Uh, could you please tell a few words about uh, this direction of your activity? Yes, it's something I love to do. I think people's stories are so interesting and people in general like telling their stories. And it's, I think it's quite healing for them to tell the stories and reconnect with uh, their own past. So what I tend to do is to interview someone and record them um, you know, on, on audio so I can listen back um, and so I can concentrate and look at them while they're speaking and not be preoccupied with writing in a book. Then I will listen back and find the language um, that really sticks out to me, the rhythms and the words that they've used and try to use their words rather than mine to write poems and songs and um, also monologues. Um, and then where possible, once a piece is finished, to take it back to the person and say, is this right? Is, are you happy with this? Um, some people are not interested 
in seeing what you've done. They were quite happy to tell their story and they're quite happy. They trust you to do whatever you want with it. Um, I wrote a piece from, from my neighbours actually who live over the road. Um, they worked in the carpet industry together and I wrote a song for them. And they said, oh, that bit's not quite right. And that bit's not quite right. Please, could you change it? So I did. And then I went into their living room and I sang it to them. And it, it was a very moving experience. And then they were able to pass on that song to, um, to their family. So I think not only is you making a lovely connection with the person you're with, you're connecting them with the past and with, with the rest of their family. And I have had people come up to me after someone's died and said, thank you so much for writing that piece with my father, say, because it's really helped us connect. Um, and in terms of performances, I mean, I've just, um, I'm working with a company called Alarum Productions and we tell the stories of women. And I've just uh, had the first couple of performances of a new show, which is telling the stories of, of women who we have interviewed, who were present at one of the performances. And uh, there was one particular, well, two women. One was my mother. So I played the part of my mother. And I also played the part of a woman called Tina. Um, and it was quite weird representing people who were sat in the audience listening to you and hoping that what you have chosen of their words is doing tribute to them and respecting them and um tina's response was was thank you so much for making us seem so or making us feel so special because these women have not appreciated what how important what they were doing this is to do with canal restoration um they, they hadn't appreciated that in cooking and in looking after the family uh, and all the th jobs that they felt were quite small and unimportant how, how important those really are and um, so it's real it's a real privilege to be able to share those stories and then you'll find that other people will come to you having been to a show and say oh that reminds me of so and so and I've got these photographs of when I did such and such please would you look at them listen to my story um, and it's it's such a lovely positive thing to do um, taking someone's story, sharing it with someone else and building a connection and an understanding across the generations as well. As far as I know, you work also with more uh, distant past, like you uh, restore uh, the stories of World War II, especially the untold stories of the women. Uh, could you also uh, comment something on, on these, uh, these cases, this story? Yes, yes, I, I loved working on that and we're still performing the show that we wrote from it and we have a book. Um, these women I couldn't interview because um, they were either no longer alive or I just wasn't able to speak to them. So a lot of the um, information has come from books. These particular women, they were mainly middle class women who took over the working canal boats during the Second World War because there was a shortage of crews. So some of the women joined uh, because they wanted some adventure. Um, some of them wanted to escape from their husbands. So they were from fairly well-to-do families um, and they got involved in this very difficult, um, heavy work. 
taking two 70 feet long narrow boats laden with cargo on a, a three week trip across the country, picking up and delivering cargo. Um, so the, the stories of these women are again told in their own words, but this time some of them have come from recorded interviews, some of them from diaries and some from books that the women write. And we're very lucky, these women being, being middle class, they were able to actually, they could read and write, which none of the voting families could. Um, and they could put together these, these books, each four of them wrote books. Um, and so we've learned a lot about them through that. But com compared to the, uh, you know, I've read some of the, um, the poems from, from your region, and it, it's like reading Wilfred Owen in a way, you feel very, very close to war. The stories of the, the women in World War II, the so-called idle women, it just feels very sanitized compared to the grit. Um, I th think the, these women, because they're British, they you know stiff upper lip. They uh, they do tell you what it was like going to the toilet in a bucket in the engine room, not in gory detail, I must say, but you know t talking about the the basics of of what life was like and how one there was one time when um, there was a an incident when a boat got damaged by shrapnel um, in London. But that, that's as close as you feel you get to the realities of war because it's women in, in England keep working for the war effort. It's that kind of, that kind of daring do feeling about it and, and women together having fun and funny stories about, you know, wearing dirty clothes and not not having time to sew your trousers so it's, it's those kind of stories which which do have a place and which do connect people to what it must have been like in world, world war ii but you don't get the you don't get the grit that you would get from from the front line uh, you you told uh, this moment about women that took part uh, in the World War II. Uh, tomorrow uh, we are going to to have our conference where I would like to present you uh, women that uh, took part in uh, modern uh, Ukrainian war in in Donbas. Um, some of them were snipers, um, they were shooting, so this is very vivid uh, experience and very touching. Thank you very much, Heather.